now that you've arrived here, have met each other and had a couple of days of getting connected to this place, the staff and each other, have entered the silence and begun to quiet down a bit, we begin to see, as Joseph said last night, what's what. And one of the first experiences that many of you may have noticed in these first two days is the lack of stimulation, the lack of friends, the lack of entertainment, the lack of fun. Well, these first days are the hardest days. And it takes a couple of days to get settled in, to shift your energy to what we're doing here, and to shift your expectations from the excitement that we might live with outside of retreat to the excitement of Dharma practice. Our familiar sources of happiness and pleasure aren't available here. And what pleasure or happiness there is around meals is pretty fleeting. (laughs) This is the problem. This is the limitation of pleasure as a source of happiness in our life. It doesn't last very long. It's fleeting. It just doesn't provide a stable source or foundation for that contentment and fulfillment and joy that we hope or to expect in life. What we're doing here is of a different sort or a different order than merely seeking pleasure. But it leads to the development of a more solid and enduring foundation for a subtler happiness. When the Buddha was invited to take a meal at one of his supporters' home or palace, it's said that he would speak either before the meal or after the meal and he would survey the audience or survey the donors, the family and the donors, and he would determine what their level of faith was, what their level of confidence and what their level of wisdom, understanding was. And then he would speak to them and lead them through a sequential description and enumeration of the different kinds of Dharma practice and the type of happiness that one could expect if they practiced the Dharma. And he would go on to enumerate the benefits, but he was also wise enough to acknowledge the limits of the happiness of each practice and move on to the next practice. Tonight I want to give a brief overview of these practices and the happiness that can rest on the stable foundation that we develop in practice here. When we understand the law of karma, when we understand the law of cause and effect, and that we have choices how to live our life, how to spend our time. We can see that our decision to be here for six weeks or three months is a powerful conditioning influence on our future happiness.
the first practice that the Buddha would talk about was the practice of generosity, the practice of opening your heart to share what you have and can with others, to acknowledge your interconnection, your interdependence upon all other beings, and to share that that you have, that gift that you have in your own life. And it may be the gift of resources, knowledge, time, energy, understanding. Whatever skills you have, when you share them for the benefit and happiness of oneself and others, then this is developing the generous heart. It's an initial softening or an initial uh, putting aside of this sometimes seemingly solid boundary that we experience between ourselves and everyone else. And when we can give of ourself something that's truly valuable of ourself or of ours and share that with others, then we begin to include those others in our life in a very not just self-interested way. But it's important to understand where the giving comes from, to understand the motivation in our sharing, in our giving. Because we know that sometimes we can give, we can offer uh, our time or our resources with an expectation attached that we will be given or shared or offered something in return. The motivation for true giving, for true opening of the heart to encompass all others and for their benefit and happiness is to understand that our sharing of our life, that freely offering of whatever we have, when it's motivated by a desire to relieve others of the source of their unhappiness and hopefully to allow them some peace of mind or encouragement for their peace of mind, then this is true giving. Recognizing that our happiness cannot be at the expense of another's, but rather our happiness the stability and the endurance of our own happiness rests on the happiness of all others around us. When I was in Burma a few years ago, just before I left Burma, a couple of Burmese women came to me in the monastery where I was staying, and they said, oh, we'd like you to meet our teacher, our Sayadaw. He's been uh, our family's teacher for since, since they were kids. And they were now my age, 40-something. And as it happens in Burma, people really are quite fond of their teacher. And they want you to meet them and, and like them as much as they do, similar to here in America. And I had been uh, reluctant uh, the first couple times that they asked me. But as I was about to leave Burma, I said, well, it wouldn't be long if I went to visit. So I agreed to go. And on the way there, this monk lived in on the outskirts of Burma. On the way there, they were telling me about him, that some 30 years before, he had been quite a popular and uh, very respected teacher in 
one of the largest meditation centers in Rangoon. And due to his sincere practice, he just didn't like being in the hubbub of activity in the big meditation center. So he had asked his teacher if he could leave teaching and go out on his own. And his teacher had said no. Uh, He wanted him to stay there and continue teaching in his meditation center. And after a few more years, he asked again, and again the answer was no, that he would like him to stay. And after he'd been there for ten years teaching, kind of against his own uh, personal desire, um, when he asked a third time, his teacher said yes, that he could go. And so he went to what was then the uh, outskirts or the very edge of Rangoon, where Rangoon met the jungle. And there was a, a cave there and a little monastery, and he decided to stay there. So he stayed in this cave, and he just did his own practice. And he was quite relieved of, to be free of his teaching duties at the meditation center. But as it ha- would happen, being sincere in his practice, the people that he had taught earlier heard about him, where he was staying, and they went to visit him. And so when, he, when they came, he would teach them, and they liked it. So they would find some way to move to that area of Rangoon to live in order to be near him. And now he's been there 30 years. Now he's in the middle of a huge suburb. Rangoon kind of grew in his direction because so many people wanted to practice with him that they would come there and find a way to live around there and go do their jobs and then come to his monastery at night for sitting practice in a Dharma talk. In return for his teaching or sharing or out of respect for his teaching and sharing the Dharma, the townspeople, the people that live around him, support him and about a dozen monks and novices, young monks and novices, and about 20 elderly women that have kind of retired to his little forest monastery. And it's only about maybe an acre or an acre and a half in the middle of the suburb. But he's of such a simple um, character that he wouldn't allow the trees to be cut, he wouldn't allow cement pavements to be put down, or telephone, or electricity, or even any fancy buildings. Just simple cabins made of wood and a large meditation center for the hundreds of people that would come to listen to him each night. His generosity with his time, with his knowledge, with his understanding of the Dharma, has contributed to the happiness of a tremendous amount of people. And I was really quite struck by how simple he lived in the midst of the hubbub around him. And one day he took me on alms round. And rather than going with the rest of the monks in his monastery, he led me out the back way. And we just wandered through these suburbs, the streets and the suburbs and the marketplaces. And everywhere we went, even though it wasn't the usual route that the monks from that monastery would take, everybody in the marketplace would stop what they were doing and buy something from the nearest vendor and offer it to us. And we would just stand in one place, sometimes for several minutes, while people lined up in order to offer us food and rice and things, flowers for the monastery. And in one day, we collected, I mean, just the two of us collected more than enough food to feed a couple of hundred people. And there was only 20 or 30 of us in the monastery. And so all the food that was collected, of course, monks can't keep food overnight, so it was given back to the people in the village that needed it. Tremendous um, lesson in the power of giving and sharing what we have with others. And you can see that he and the people that live around him are really happy, even though they don't have a lot. But they really do have a solid foundation for their happiness in life.
What we're doing here is practicing the Dhamma, the Dhamma being the truth, and undertaking a powerful practice to recognize our truth and to acknowledge it to ourselves the way things are. And the Buddha said that the, the gift of the Dhamma excels all other forms of giving. What you are giving here is the Dharma to the rest of the world. Giving the world the rest of the giving the rest of the world the truth by the way you live your life. It's a powerful expression of your care and concern for the happiness of all beings. But even though we develop a very generous heart, able to share what we have with others, still we can find plenty of causes and reasons and experiences that lead us to unhappiness. So the Buddha would talk about the second practice or the second training, and that is the practice of living an ethical life, the practice of morality, undertaking a commitment to live with self-respect and respect for others. Here, the morality or the sila that we're practicing is living by the five precepts, not to steal, not to take what isn't given, uh, sexual um, abstinence, not to use intoxicants, and to speak the truth. What each of these practices, and especially this one, require, is that we begin to pay very careful attention to that within us that feels disturbed when we say or do actions contrary to our own best interest. When we say or act in a way that disturbs our own heart, which challenges or shakes our own sense of modesty, then we can know that we're getting close to the edge of what for us is ethically valuable. So the Buddha said to, or pointed to the sense of modesty as that which needs to be cultivated, that which needs to be paid attention to in order to live an ethical life. Not so much that he was laying down Um, strong commandments or injunctions of thou shalt not, but rather, if you pay attention, you'll see what causes you uh, disturbance and, and unhappiness in your own heart. Not only one's own sense of what's right and wrong and conducive or respectful of oneself, but we also need to begin to pay attention to the judgments or the standards of the community in which we live, the understandings that the community has of what's right and what's wrong. Now, we don't have to go out and find a community to fit into. I would merely ask you to look in your life and see who it is that you really care about how they think about you. Who are those people in your life that you really want to see you as you really are? That you want to be uh, respected by or that you value and respect? That's your spiritual community. Those are the people in your spiritual community. And it's their standards or understanding and their sense of right and wrong and what leads to happiness that we need to begin to pay attention to. And here we've all undertaken these precepts. We are a community now. This is the standard that we've set for ourselves, And it's a training to try to live up to what we understand to be conducive to our own happiness and to the happiness of others around us.
Antonio Machado was a poet in Spain earlier this century. And when asked to um, write his autobiography, he wrote a poem called Portrait. And in it, in talking about himself, he says, There is a man of rule who behaves as he should, but more than him I am, in the good sense of the word, good. I fall silent so as to separate voices from echoes, and I listen among the voices to one voice and only one. I talk always to the man who walks along with me. Men who talk to themselves hope to talk to God someday. My soliloquies amount to discussions with this friend who taught me the secret of loving human beings. It's clear that he's learned how to listen to that sensitive voice within himself that knows how to respect and love himself and others. This is living an ethical life. This is the foundation for acting with self-respect. And when we do, when we live our lives carefully and sensitively to our own respect and the respect of others, then our actions and our behaviors, our speech, are free from blame, free from regret and remorse, free from punishment by authorities, and really contribute to a sense of community and harmony, or a sense of safety in community, when we don't fear the judgment of others. This harmony and this sense of safety is one of the greatest gifts we can give to each other. It's a, an experience of, uh, or a foundation for happiness that we all want in our lives to feel connected to others and to feel safe. And the only, you can't buy it. You can only cultivate it by your own commitment and understanding of yourself. But when it happens that, indeed, as it often does, you act outside of that which you respect in yourself or that which you value in others, when you do transgress against your own understanding, then it's necessary, it's helpful, it's really instructive to make some sort of atonement for it, to acknowledge it to yourself, acknowledge it to others, to make some sort of confession if you're able. And what a confession does is to acknowledge the limits of your understanding or the limits of your energy or commitment and to ask really to be reconnected to yourself and the community so that we don't end up going through life or even going through this retreat feeling alienated from others because we've done something uh, that wasn't so skillful. To acknowledge our limits of understanding and to uh, respect our own wish to be reconnected and to take the steps in order to do that. Such a confession is not a shaming or humiliating uh, action, but rather it's a very empowering action where one really acknowledges their own understanding and their desire to be uh, in harmony in a safe community. If we live this way, if we live with a real commitment and with integrity to living an ethical life, respecting ourselves and respecting this community, even with that, we can still find our minds and hearts disturbed by thoughts and wishes outside of uh, an ethical life. And so the Buddha went on to talk about 
the need for a third training, and this is the training in concentration. Living an ethical life for morality tames our behavior, leads to a purification of our behavior, and leads to the happiness of harmony and safety. But it's concentration that tames our mind, that begins to tranquilize our mind in order to discover the happiness of seclusion and tranquility, a much subtler happiness than uh, enjoyment and indulgence in pleasure. In the Dhammapada, the Dhammapada is a collection of verses that the Buddha spoke. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, The mind is the forerunner of all conditions. Mind is chief. If with an impure mind one speaks or acts, then pain and unhappiness follows just as surely as the wheel of the cart follows the hoof of the ox pulling it. However, if with a pure mind one speaks or acts, then happiness follows one just as a shadow that never leaves. The Buddha was unequivocal in pointing to the mind and its development or lack of development as the source for our happiness. Not necessarily to be found in external things. External conditions help, but it's really our relationship to them, our mind's relationship to all things which really lays the foundation for happiness or unhappiness. We'll be speaking more about the nature of the pure mind and about the nature of the impure mind. But just to briefly acknowledge that the nature of the mind is awareness to know. That knowing quality, that knowing ability can be obscured, obstructed, or even unrecognized when the mind is clouded by hindrances, what are known in in the text classically as the five hindrances, sleepiness and dullness, or its opposite, restlessness and excess of energy, or desire or aversion, or confusion and doubt. These are the uh, frequent visitors in the first days of retreat. And I'm sure you've seen some of them today. The practice of concentration is the practice of stilling the mind, to tame the mind, to bring it into the present moment in order to tranquilize the mind, to still the mind, and in doing so, to put aside these habitual tendencies we have of liking and disliking, restlessness or dullness or confusion that obscure our knowing, that color our knowing, or that flavor our mind. Wang Po was a ninth century Chinese Zen master, and he said, This pure mind, which is the source of all things, shines forever with the radiance of its own perfection. It is a jewel beyond all price. This pure mind is a jewel beyond all price. Sounds to me like it's the most valuable thing you could own that you could discover, that you could see within your own life. The mind unobscured by dullness or sleepiness, restlessness, aversion, desire, and doubt. When we recognize the clarity of the mind's knowing ability, we can live in the seclusion of the happiness 
and seclusion away from these tormenting natures, these tormenting experiences in the mind, and find some tranquility, some peace, temporary though it is. When the Buddha taught the practices that develop tranquility, concentration, stillness, he was very careful to acknowledge that the result or the effect of tranquility practices would develop and last for as long as one did the practice. But that when one stopped the practice of tranquility or concentration, that the effect of that stillness would eventually wear off and the momentum would uh, lessen and we'd find ourselves back in the same state of mind that we started with, agitated, the hindrances, the obstructions arising again. And so even though the practice of concentration could lead to happiness of stillness and seclusion, it wasn't permanent. But in the practice of tranquility, concentration, the Buddha taught one called metta or loving-kindness, which we'll be doing here also, so I want to speak about that. Metta or happiness of loving-kindness is really the happiness of absorption in love, developing a powerful loving feeling within oneself that connects us to all others as we pervade it towards them. And in this sense, this metta or love is primarily an attitudinal relationship towards all of life, an open appreciation of all that come that, that we come in contact with, all of life's experience, rather than primarily a relationship with one other person. It's developing uh, an appreciative consciousness. When we do this, when we develop love and pervade it towards others, the sense of care and respect becomes powerful and really strongly felt. And we can feel comfortable feeling open and vulnerable towards all beings, where we care, the care that we feel for ourselves and others is exquisite, where it's soft, and where we feel patient with even difficult situations. And so here, it's really helpful to have a an attitude of care and appreciation because sometimes we're going to need to be patient with each other. As our minds become quiet and sensitive and more open, little things can seem awfully big. Things get magnified and so little irritations, other people's irritating behavior becomes a tremendous source of unhappiness in our own life. And so we need to develop a caring relationship towards others so that we can be patient with our own limits in the behavior of others. But with development of metta, we also begin to feel the intimate connection that we all have being here. And we recognize the common unity of this thing that's happening. Living in a loving community allows us a supreme sense of protection and safety, a true source of happiness. As one practices concentration meditations, as some of you will be doing, 
it is possible to obtain deep absorption, deep uh, alignment with these feelings, so that the whole mind becomes deeply connected to the feeling of love and really absorbed in it, lost in it. And when one accesses these deep states of concentration, there's a profound sense of stillness and tranquility, quietness and softness that's just unavailable as an experience outside of practice. There's just not that experience uh, outside of Dharma practice, that exquisite joy, ecstasy, stillness, tranquility, possible through deep concentration. This is a happiness, this is a, a, a source of happiness uncommon in this world. Too subtle to be appreciated by most, but available to those who practice. A year ago, I was teaching a retreat up in Washington. And at the end of the retreat, I just like to have a little feedback from people. And so I was asking the students that had done the retreat um, just to share some experience of uh, theirs on the retreat or what they get out of practice or, or, or just something that uh, gives me an indication of how they're doing. And one woman uh, just, she, t- she told a story. And there was nothing to distinguish this woman from any one of us. And she was just sitting in the circle and she was up back kind of quiet. And she said, well, one day I was driving in Seattle and I came up to a stoplight and there was a car ahead of me. And as I looked at the car, um, I could see that the passenger side door was open. And uh, I could see some feet sticking out of the door. And she said, so I started looking carefully and I could see that the driver of the car was apparently struggling with the person whose feet were hanging out the door. And it seemed like the driver was beating that other person. And so the light changed and the car took off, went around the corner and sped down the road. And so this woman said, well, I was curious, so I followed. And um, went down through another stop sign, took another turn, a couple turns, and then the car pulled off to the side of the road. And the, the woman was telling the story, she said, well, I could see that the driver was beating on this other person. So she took her car and she turned it around and she came up against the bumper of the other car on the corner of it. And she started tooting her horn. And pretty soon she got the attention of the driver who was being abusive. And he looked at and said, what the hell do you want? And she said, I just don't want to see anybody get hurt. And she said she was frightened but fearless at the same time. And of course, the being seen or, or, or uh, acknowledged what was going on, then the, the other person in the car uh, was able to get free and, and somehow was safe. And this woman said that she didn't even really stop and think about what uh, she had to do. She just felt care and strong as a result of practice. This is a source of happiness in people's lives. Feeling caring and strong, fearless. So when we do uh, guided meditations here in the development of metta, loving kindness, uh, please consider it an invitation to turn on your love light. Leave it on. But since the results or the benefits 
of metta practice or deep absorptions are temporary, the Buddha said that it's not enough. We still need to look deeply within our minds to see the source, the seeds, the sources, the roots of our unhappiness, the roots of our confusion. And for this we need to practice insight. Insight practice leads to the happiness of understanding. When we can live with the way things are, when we can live in harmony with the way things are, through right understanding, then we'll discover a happiness as yet unseen. You may have discovered or you will soon, that much of what we spend our time with here is the questions who I am, what I want, and what I believe. And it seems that we just quite repetitively, mechanically, habitually reflect on our sense of ourself, the things we need in our life in order to be happy, and what we believe and don't believe. And this is a source of great disturbance and unhappiness. As we practice insight, and we begin to see deeply into the conditions that lead to happiness and unhappiness, and how awareness, mindfulness, allows us to be happy, then we begin to understand the way things are. Now this understanding does not come because we teachers are sitting up here telling you what to believe. And it doesn't come because of thinking about what we say, but rather it comes from a deep, clear seeing the way things are within your own process, how it is for you that happiness comes, that unhappiness comes. And to see the roots in your mind of your actions, of your speech, of your self-image, of your desires, of your beliefs, your opinions, your attitudes. And when we can see the roots, the need for, or the apparent need for, and let go in each moment that we recognize it, then we discover momentary freedom, momentary peace. I was talking to Ron, the uh, Wall Street Journal reporter that's here, or going to be here, doing a little practice. And he was asking me questions about what it's like for you, and or what it would be like for you. And I was telling him that this, the way we're living here, is not meant to be a way of life. It's not like we're learning how to walk slow, avoid looking and talking, so that we can go out in the world and live that way. That's not, that's not what we're doing here. But rather, the qualities of mind that we develop here, patience, understanding, energy, confidence, stability, whatever. These qualities of mind serve us well in whatever we do outside of here. It's like this. If we lived, or if we were born and grew up and lived in a valley, in a mountainous region somewhere, and we lived in this valley our whole life, went to school, got a job, uh, raised a family, 
our whole life, everything that we knew from direct experience would be in that valley. We'd know all the people, all the houses, all the businesses, all the activities. And then one day, if we were invited to go on a hike into the nearby surrounding mountains, the higher we climbed on this path in the mountains, the different view we would have of our life. Because we'd turn around and look back and see our village down there. See our whole life down there. And as we get further up the mountain and even possibly to the top of the mountain, we begin to see how vast the experience of life could be. The other mountain ranges, the other villages, the sky, the, the endlessness of it. And within that, all that we know is down there in that one little valley. Well, this changes our perspective of life tremendously. Tremendous information that you can't get other than by climbing that mountain. But you can't live on the mountain. There's no jobs there. And so you have to go back to the valley and you have to go back to your home and your family and your job and the streets and the bakery and all that. But the way you live there will be different from because of what you have seen up on that mountain. What we're doing here is climbing that mountain. Getting another look at our life. Seeing it from a different perspective. Putting it in a different uh, view. You're not going to live here for more than three months, maybe. Or at some point, you're going to have to go home. And, well, you take the view of your life from here with you. It will inform and transform your life. This understanding deeply the nature of our life, the source of happiness and unhappiness in our life, is powerful support for happiness. But in this process of coming to know who we are, it's a gradual opening of the mind. You know, as we were growing up, you know, uh, mommy or daddy held us and said, yeah, Stevie, you're my little boy. Yes, I like you. You're so nice. Yeah, yeah. Stevie, 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 you know. And you're such a good little boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and after 20 years, I said, yeah, I'm Steve. I'm a good little boy. <laughs> you know, and along the way, she said, Mom said, I don't do that. Good little boys don't say that. Good little boys don't do that. And so, sure enough, I didn't, or I did. <laughs> and so when I come to... When I come to Dharma practice uh, 20 years ago, um, I find that I'm living in a very small range of what it is possible to experience as a human being. Because it's not permissible. It's not allowed for good little boys to feel that, to say that, to do that. They're outside the range of what's okay. And so I've found myself in this little narrow groove. Dharma practice, or insight practice, uh, thankfully, its challenge is to expand the groove, to open the mind, to, to allow other experiences in. And we allow in uh, unfamiliar physical experiences, mental experience, emotional experience, the whole range of what it is possible to experience as a human being. And along the way, it might get scary, it might get exciting, it might be uh, challenging. A whole range of uh, reactions to that opening. But as we learn to open, as we learn to become familiar with the unfamiliar. The sense of peace becomes stronger. The sense of being at ease with whatever comes up becomes stronger. 
And in this path of opening, for the most part, we can open and we can close back down. Open while we practice, close back down when we stop practice. Until and unless we pass certain barriers, certain openings. And the Buddha said there are these openings. There are these openings in practice in the mind, which one, when once accessed, you can't go back. And never pick up that limitation or boundary again. When we see so deeply into the roots of our unhappiness and pluck those roots, that source of unhappiness can't grow again. And it's when we discover this source of happiness that we discover peace, that we come upon the peace that is unshakable by any experience. The Buddha said, there is no higher happiness than peace. But it's a happiness that is subtle and it takes practice to access. What we're doing here is learning that practice, practicing that happiness. Your decision to be here for three months is a powerful commitment. A choice that expresses your care for your own suffering and unhappiness. So I want to honor your choice to spend three months, six weeks or three months, caring about yourself really deeply. And I applaud your effort along the way. I hope that this time of practice for you will uh, allow you every success that you hope for. And I hope you can discover that peace of mind that's permanent. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.